welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place right here between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake. And I'm Brendan. And today we are going to talk about not how to get good at games, which we've done a little bit in the past, but but we're, we're already there. And this is a what we talk about episode all about being good at games and wrapping in everything that comes with that. Uh, should be a really fun conversation. And thank you so much for joining us for it. Brendan, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jake. Uh, it's great to be back and, and chatting with you on the podcast and just doing the decision space thing. I uh, It's very hot where we are, though. So lots of excuses to stay inside where I am, I should say. You are not here with me. Um, you are many miles away. But where I am, it's very hot. So good excuses to stay inside and play games and try to convince my wife to play games with me before we have a little baby. Awesome, man. Make and- it more difficult. How are you? I'm good. And here it's very rainy, which is kind of on the other side of the spectrum, but still like we've come all the way back around to like staying inside and playing games. Nice. So it's perfect. Yeah, I think I might hoping to get a game played this Friday evening even. What do you want to play? What are you going to play? I haven't thought that far ahead. I knew as soon as I said that I was opening up myself to this obvious follow-up question. Um, my, I the, think my... Mine and I might do the same. And I can say what we're going to play while you think about what you might okay. play. I think that, so we were talking recently, I bought New York Zoo, which I've talked about on the podcast once or twice. This is the Uwe Rosenberg uh, polyomino game where you're building zoo enclosures to put different little cute shaped animals. And she was like, why do we only play that game a handful of times? Um, so I think we'll try that again and see if we like it more or if it it's tough to justify the setup when patchwork is just mwah, so good. Such a good chef's kiss. Um, I think, you know, I might honestly have, after talking to Paul on our last episode about all the awesome uh, games exclusives at Target by his favorite designer, I was thinking about maybe even like heading over there after work and grabbing one of those small box games. I know that he's got a new roll and write game called Super Mega Lucky Fun Box uh, by Paul Walker Harding. Uh, And that one sounds rad and i think that might be really up my alley and bridget's as well so maybe i'll make a quick stop after work and, and try something new nice i always love picking up roll and write games or flipping right games because you can learn them in like two seconds and then play in 15 or 20 it's like that it's like getting a nice little you know like an ice cream cone in yeah. game version it's so good well without further ado well actually i should ask before getting too far ahead of ourselves is there anything on your mind that you want to talk about now or should we get straight into the conversation i think let's get straight into it unless you have something specifically on your mind that's been pressing down in your little decision space version section of your brain no let's get into the episode i had a little bit opportunity to like relieve that decision space pressure last week with paul and, and just talk talk through a handful of games so i feel like uh, that is taken care of and there's nothing left to do but jump straight into this conversation. And this is where I would like to start. Brendan, how do you, for yourself, know or make the determination that I'm good at a game, if Mm. if at all? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, Jake. And I think it happens for me. I was thinking about this a lot in preparing for the podcast when you sent through some of the questions that we'll be talking about today. And I think... For me, it's largely two factors that come into play. 
The first is that I feel like I'm good at a game when I can make decisions with confidence. Um, so I know that the decision I'm making is the right decision in the context of the game. I think when I have those feelings, I'm in a place where I feel like I understand the systems over well, overall well enough uh, to make informed decisions such that I feel like I qualify as good at the game. Because I think a lot of times when we talk about being good or being bad at a game, I think largely it means like, do you understand the game well? And then can you make informed decisions about understanding the game and its systems? Um, and I think because so often, a lot of times when I'm playing games or when we're playing games together, uh, when we're not doing deep dives to the show, I'll just play the game like, you know, casually and then it goes on the shelf for two or three months and then return to it. So a lot of like, are you good at a game? I think in taking a step back outside of like a hyper competitive uh, community is really like, do you understand the game and its systems? And if so, you're probably good at the game. Um, probably not amazing at the game. But I think for me, it largely comes down to, am I making decisions with confidence? And then I think the second follow-up is like, am I better than 50% of the players who I would likely meet if I was going to play this game? And I think that's the two ways. What about you, Jake? How do you determine if you're good at a game? I think for me, it is largely based on like external factors um, and, and validation. By that, I mean, if I'm playing online, you know, have I... How is my win percentage? Um, if I'm winning a large percent of the game, that tells me I'm good at the game. If I'm playing in person, I like to track my stats on on like the board game stats app, and uh, you know, so I can I can like literally look and see. Wow, I you know I my win if it's a four player game, right? And I'm winning fifty percent of the time or more. You know that that means to me I'm probably pretty good at this game, but Nested within that question, of course, is this idea that being good at a game is so completely relative to the circumstance, right? Um, and I think the classic example of of this kind of dynamic comes from, at least from my experience and, and many other people's experience of playing like fighting video games, sure, uh, which is like this classic thing where, you know, you beat all your friends at Super Smash Bros. You know, people come over uh, and you just mop the floor with them. You can't be beaten. You can't be touched. You're just the god of Smash Bros in your little meta of middle school friends. Um, so, so confident and sure in your abilities, you show up at the uh, local video game store uh, tournament that's going on and you are like the worst person there. You are just terrible. And, you know, and, and you realize like, wow, there's just tremendous levels to being good. So I think in the context of this episode, this is so much like we're already into semantics, but I think that a lot of times when we do this in these episodes, it's valuable. Is that person good at the fighting game they were playing? Yeah, I mean, right. It's relative. Like in, in the... And I think that's the point I'm trying to make. Like, yeah. in the home meta of your playing in your living room, you know, you are very good. Uh, in comparison to the best person in the world at the game, you're very bad. And I think that is almost going to be the case for any game, sport, hobby, activity, right? Board game or otherwise um, that that you could put forward. So yeah. I would propose 
you know, for this episode, when we're talking about being good at a game here, I think we should consider kind of the home meta. Like when you're playing with your friends, you're playing, you maybe you go to a board game meetup and you're playing with like experienced game players, but not necessarily, you know, I don't think we should have such a high standard of what it means to be good at the game uh, as to say that, you know, you're competitive at the highest level. And if we did do that, we probably wouldn't have very much to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depends on what game we're talking about. I know of a few board games where you're like ranked top 25 on Yukata. So, but I hear what you're saying. and, And that's probably true. I do think that it's probably more useful to talk about being good in terms of that global scale, unless we're talking specifically about competition. But I feel like we've covered that in a lot of episodes. Um, so in terms of like, what does it mean to be good? And do I want to be good? And and what are the consequences of being good at a game? I think it's so much more interesting to have the conversation based on like anyone who you might probably play this game with or who has casually played the game in their lives. Yeah, great. Um, I think we're on the same page about that. So I kind of want to turn the conversation a little bit towards like, when you are good at a game, right? You've got a game, you've played it a bunch. uh, You've played it with friends a lot. um, And and you know, right? You're you're very self-assured in the strategies you're employing and the tactics and know like you can easily uh, spot a bad move, right? That could be another way to kind of indicate to oneself if they're good at the game. Uh, if, If you're seeing people making mistakes, you're probably quite a bit ahead of the curve. So you're you're there. Um, do you think there's any kind of like responsibility like to how you engage with the game mm. once you've made that determination that you are a good player? Responsibility to the magic circle that you've created? Yeah, yeah. I mean, take that how you will. But I think that's certainly one one thing I was trying to get at. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting question. Basically... I feel like the way that I tackle that is that I think when everyone, depending on the group that I'm playing with, um, because of the question of that magic circle, right? The contract that we're all agreeing to when we sit down to play the game, usually implicitly, right? We're never saying like explicitly, okay, this is going to be a moderately competitive game in which we're all playing very seriously, but we're not helping each other uh, and not making, we're not taking back anything. And if we make a mistake, you won't point it out. And we're not talking about strategy. And do you agree? If so, you have to take a sip of your your drink. No, it's just sort of like you get the vibe of the night. Uh, And I think think that you it depends on your group right if you sit down with a group of people who plays games frequently um, and you've played the game more than other people I think I feel a responsibility to create an even playing field in terms of uh, that question of what I said earlier right so if there's things that I'm seeing people at the table aren't understanding about the game that are sort of like baseline consequences of the systems and I know that that player wants me to I feel like I do have a responsibility to say hey you could make that choice but I think you're you might be misunderstanding that by using this card or playing in this sequence you're giving up potential value and I know we all want to be playing the best possible game uh, that we can tonight so what if you did it in this order instead I think that sometimes just pointing those things out as long as the person wants them pointed out I feel like I do have a responsibility 
um, just ha- in in a way, it's like sort of being at the front of the trail in terms of your experience with a game, right? You're like making sure that on a hike, you're making sure that the path is cleared. No one's going to hit any spider webs and you're all going to enjoy the trip, but you also don't want to be like pushing everyone to be walking faster than they need to walk and like no stops for water breaks. And like, also we have to walk at my speed and you're going too slow, right? What about you, Jack? Yeah. Do you feel a responsibility? Well, I, I think it definitely does change the dynamic of the play for me. I don't think that there's any kind of responsibility to play less optimally. Like I, I would, I wouldn't advocate for that, and I actually kind of like hate, hate that. that. I think I've been kind of uh, socialized to hate that by playing like a lot of youth soccer as a kid and not always on great teams and so Mm. you like losing to the game like you're losing by like you know three or four goals and the other team starts like play like the other coach be like okay now everyone has to only you know use one touch like pass the ball with one touch or else you're like giving the ball back and it's just like i get it right hey that's that coach saying like here's an opportunity to like make this useful to us while we're just like (laughs) roasting these scrubs but as like (laughs) As a scrub, uh, I found that quite disrespectful. So I'm always like going to play my best. Um, hey, don't we, a, why don't we rub salt in these people's wound while we're at it? Right. Which in board games is like, hey, why don't I tell you how dumb you are? Right. Well, uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, right. You can imagine like, oh, like I could do this to like, you know, take this resource I really know you want and essentially like shut you out of the game. But like, I'm going to choose to do something else. Yeah to like give you a break you know i don't i don't think that's going to be like good vibes for anyone at all but i do think there is also some responsibility to if not coach like make the other people aware that like you're available to coach Mm. you know And, and it could be maybe as simple as saying something along the lines of yeah i've played this game a bunch so you know if you have any questions about anything like don't hesitate to like ask i'm happy to like offer tips if if or whatever if somebody wants that you know just because you know i do think you can overstep too right you don't want to always be like on somebody else's turn you're saying oh you shouldn't really do that um and that type of thing i definitely like to uh, if i'm playing a a game like a euro game or a, a heavier medium weight to heavier weight game with people who've never played it before um and i know it's something that as a group we're going to want to play like two or three times in that night or weekend say would it be helpful if i narrated my first few turns um because i found too that sometimes you as an experienced player so a good player usually experienced players are good players at games for the sake of the conversation we're having um, sort of say, would it be helpful if I did this and then explain why I'm doing things? Because sometimes I've found that like, you'll end up with an edge case where maybe you'll make a decision early on that signals to everyone else at the table because they know that you're the experienced player, that this is a good thing to do, but maybe you're doing it because the situation in the game, uh, is set up such that a decision that wouldn't normally be great is really good in this first turn and sort of narrating that and walking people through it can sort of help even the playing field a little bit. I'm thinking of like maybe an Arnak, uh, a card comes out where the first thing I'm going to do, because I see that dog is available for purchase in the, in the purchase order and dog is a very good card and I'm going first, maybe instead of going to compasses or going to the arrowheads, I go straight to the coin spot because I want to be able to get coins to buy dog. 
generally getting coins off your first worker play isn't the best. There's better available spots. It's like a backup spot. So narrating that and sort of saying money can be good in this game, but I really, will, I don't necessarily want the money. I just want dog because it's a really good card. I think, can, and then talking about why dog is a good card can be helpful. But to what you're saying, Jake, that's like the casual side where we're trying to get more competitive. I know you said we're not talking about competitive settings, but I would never do this in a competitive setting unless, like you said, someone asks for advice, which totally changes the situation. Right. And actually, I think um, in a competitive setting, perhaps it can be even more important if there's like a big divide in skill. Whereas I'm trying to think of the right way to put this, but, you know, if if somebody is like made clear that they're new to the game and they're shown, they've shown up at an event, uh, whether it's like a magic tournament or a Keyforge tournament or a super smash bros tournament. Right. And they're, they're very likely to do poorly at that first event. Um, so if there's like a big divide in experience, it might be even more important to like, you know, maybe don't go out of your way to like, say narrate everything you're doing, but definitely letting them know, Hey, like, you know, if you have any questions about what I'm doing here to help, I think that could really be, uh, something seen as like welcoming and inviting, um, for, for somebody in that situation. Definitely. And especially if that person is the type of person who wants to be good at games, right? Like there's some people who go to game stores and the joy for them is learning new games and playing new games. So if, if you meet that type of person and you're jumping over your heels to like correct someone, I am thinking of a, a experience with Keyforge at a store where like there was someone who would come and they would play casually. They really enjoyed Keyforge, but their fun in the game was just playing the game how they wanted to play it and explore it and not necessarily like being the most competitive player. And I th- I know for them, people sort of saying, oh, are you sure you want to do that? got to be frustrating because they're like no the fun of this game for me is like showing up opening a deck and playing the cards how i want to play them casually like and and to them when people would be like you shouldn't be doing that it's like well okay do you not want me to come to the store and play with you but for the other people who were there because they were trying to improve at the game that was sort of after game processing was one of their favorite aspects right like that's always one of my favorite things so i think it's just so dependent too on like we said like with audience i don't know yeah yeah, I actually stepped in it a little bit in a similar situation. I had some friends over to do a Keyforge, kind of like a sealed thing when the new set came out. Uh, one of the people was Jamie Stegmeier, and I was playing against him, and he, you know, discarded one of a creature from his like active mm. house. And to, and in my head, I was just thinking like, there's just no way that that is optimal play. So, you know, even even like thinking like I shouldn't be, you know, telling people how to play. Like I was kind of like, hey, like, you know, like, why not just play that guy? And he's like, I have a plan or, you know, I have a reason. And then I was kind of like, ooh, I shouldn't have. I should not have done that. And then like next turn or whatever, he had some way to like a recursion effect, to like bring it back with like a bonus or something. Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah. Like that was really dumb to do and i kind of just felt a little embarrassed it was fine but you know what i mean yeah you always risk potential feel bad moments when you don't have all the information i was actually going to say something really similarly and it's it's funny because that came from a a position of like i want to be helpful um but it sucks when you 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 want to be helpful. It's like you're you're running, right? You're running together, and you're like, "Whoa, look!" And then you're the one who like hits a branch, and they're like sailing by you, and you're like, Ooh. "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um. So, 
I think we've touched on this a little bit before, but to move the conversation forward, do you think there are like what? So we've talked a little bit about the downsides, of, like, you know, getting good and like focusing like too much on that aspect of gaming um, and then maybe like lose out on some like the joy of just playing. But I do want to talk about like once you are good, right, you've achieved that pinnacle, however you def- define it for yourself. Like, what are the kind of downsides to that? And and then also the flip side is like, what's the value? You know? Yeah, I feel like this is so much tied to what sort of, uh, for me at least, what I was saying about what it means to me to be good at a game. And I think what it means to, to me to be good at the game is to use language from ourselves from our previous episode on signpost when we first talked about it, I think, Um, the difference between decisions and choices. And I think when you're good at a game, uh, choices are uh, potential paths you can, potential choices you can make in a game. Uh, But just because something's a choice doesn't mean it's viable. And decisions are viable choices that push you meaningfully towards uh, a better position in the game or towards winning the game. So I think for me, that shift between seeing the difference between choices and decisions, that transformation is the transformation of going from playing a game to being good at a game when you can identify the difference between decisions and choices. And for me, games are more fun when I'm making decisions in a game and thinking about why I'm making those decisions than when I'm sitting there just making choices. And I'm happy to learn new games, um, and I like that, but I have more fun when I'm playing a game and making meaningful decisions. How about you, Jake? Yeah, you keyed into the exact word that I would have used as well, which is fun. You know, Mm. the value of being the only value really outside, you know, the smallest percentage edge case, right? The only value in being good at a game is that it's more fun to you. Um, But that's not always the case. And I think that's what's so interesting to me, because I think there are also times when being good at a game results in less fun you know so it's like that's both the the positive and the downside of it to me so i mean are you on the same page with me there i'm definitely on the same page with you and i think this this ties so perfectly into our conversation of like being good at a game is contextual and the fun of being good at a game is contextual because if you're really good at a game to me the biggest pitfall of being good at a game is you can't play the game and have a good game, right? A game where everyone has an equally, a, a roughly equal viable chance of winning towards like it being fair for each player skill level. If you get so good at a game that your friends don't want to play with you, it's no longer very, it's not much fun to play that game unless you're not going to be playing that game with your friends anymore and are playing competitively. So it always sucks when you get so good at a game and it was a game that everyone enjoyed at a game night. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, I don't know. Jake's too good at this game. Like, do we have to play Underwater Cities again? Like, Jake's just going to win. What if we just tried a new game? And that's like, that sucks. Yeah, right. You you like might literally not be able to play it anymore with the people you enjoy playing it with. That was kind of my, the drawback to uh, Fox in the Forest, a game we covered here mm. for a long time. It was a game my wife and I loved to play together. Um because you know at the beginning she was whipping my ass at it then we were kind of flipping back and forth but then i started winning like the vast majority of games and exactly what you said uh bridget was said you know i don't really have fun playing this one anymore because you know you've won the last several 
you know, fair point. You know, uh, there's not much you can say about it. But even more than access to playing games, I think sometimes like the act of playing games mm. when you're playing at a high level, like the actual act of playing it could be less fun than when you're first exploring the game. And I think that was something we kind of came across when we talked a little bit uh, early in the show about Res Arcana, where, yeah. you know, at least speaking for myself, I found that, you know, advanced strategies in that game. And when you kind of realized what they were, they it, the game became a lot less fun because so much, so much of the fun, at least for me early on, is just like in the exploration and, and finding these crazy things. Um, and it's like, oh, but I could basically always win in four or five turns just like doing this one strategy. So now, even though I'm playing the game at a higher level, I'm able to get to the 10 victory point, uh, you know, uh, barrier first. I'm not having fun doing it. And if I choose to do something else that's making me, you know, perform worse in the game, then that's not fun for me because I, you know, it feels like I'm playing poorly on purpose which i've already talked about is something that i really hate to do <laughs> yeah no definitely it, it's i have sort of two follow-ups to that because i feel like with res arcana especially one of the pitfalls of that was our expectations of what res arcana was going to be what the play experience was going to be versus what we realized the game was by becoming good at it that that fall it, it was like a precipitous drop in terms of fun when like we are when we realigned with what the game ended up being, it, it just, I think it damaged our potential to enjoy it. And maybe had we gone into that game with someone setting the expectations, okay, this is a four to five turn race game in which you're looking for uh, the most efficient combos you can find. And you, if you make the incorrect choice, not decision, choice, given your position on turn one, you will have lost the game. Um, oftentimes is how that game feels to me. And I think partially the the pitfall of getting good sometimes can, you might come in and be presented with a bevy of choices that end up that you think are decisions. And then at the end, there's, there's only one decision. And then it's not very much fun. Lady Aurora and or Aurora in our discord has talked about this in terms of her experience with star realms also. And I think she might've gotten past this bump uh, after our star realms episode, she started playing the game a lot and has talked to us about her competitive experience. And I think midway through her learning curve of that game, she sort of said, Oh, but this game's not very much fun because there's not a lot of decisions to make. There's just always an obvious move. Um, and I'm not sure if she still feels that way, but that's another potential pitfall. Like if you see the game so clearly, if you're so good at the game that you are a puppet to the decisions in the game and you're just move, doing the moves that you are you feel forced to make, um, then that's not very much fun either. If you're just this automa sort of going through what is obvious to you is the only path. Right. Let's use, I mean, we could use the word like people talk about solving a game and, you know, to the extent that actually happens, you know, is pretty rare. Um, I don't think Aurora would say that she's solved Star Realms by any means, but there are games that can be solved, right? Like tic-tac-toe. And when they are, you're not actually playing a game at all. And I, I think I've had an experience um, with that playing Transatlantic on Yukata, where I mm. feel like in some ways the game is solved for me. Like I played it so much, I got into like the top zeroth percentile of players. 
Uh, and, and I think I've just kind of found a strategy that is like mm. just a bit overpowered in that game to the point where it's like, I do that and then I win. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that feels good. It's nice to win. I have fun getting ranking points and like, you know, ranking up in like the meta game that is like advancing, uh, you know, in, in ranks on Yukata. Um, but like that game to actually play it, I'm not having as much fun anymore with that. So I, I think that's a great point. Yeah. And I feel like that point might pivot really, really well um into this question that you have jacob are there certain games that you want to be good at and others that you don't and why yeah exactly and i think that is a great place to go because i think that a lot of times we i think we need to separate this into two things because there are games you want to be good at because of something external outside of the game whether that is you know getting into a top percentile of players on on an online site you're playing or competing in a tournament's an online site or offline, uh, you know, whatever. But so you may want to get good at a game because of that. And it may be very fun to, you know, achieve your goals and rank up and, and get better and, and, and achieve better results. Um, but that's a very different thing than a game that is you want to get good because it's actually more fun to play it. Mm when you're good at it. And I think that's kind of what I wanted to lean into here. Like, are there games that it's fun to be good because the better you are, the more fun it is to play. That's a really interesting question. And I feel like that's, it's, that's tough. Um, and I think both of those are really interesting questions. So maybe we can make time for the competitive side of things after this too. But I'll say that I, the most recent game that I had that experience with was Lost Ruins of Arnak when we played it. And for those of you who've listened to that episode, obviously I used an example from Arnak earlier. Jake and I are playing a game on Board Game Arena uh, of Lost Ruins of Arnak right now with someone in our Discord, uh, a friend of the show, Joe. Uh, so it's a game that sort of stayed with us. And yeah. that was a game that when I first played it, I just felt this desire to be good at the game. And I think that for me, the reason that was is because I wanted, I felt like the the game was doing something special and I didn't understand how it was doing what it was doing so well. I didn't necessarily understand how every little piece of that game was balanced in a way that turns ended up feeling mostly fair, that the action sel selection mechanism worked out so well that in terms of like potential Things always seemed by like how far you can get on the research track. Um, some games I would get much further and others I wouldn't. And I wanted to understand why. And like, what about the game itself was making these things possible? Um, so I feel like in terms of that and wanting to get good at the game, for me, outside of the competitive side, was I just wanted to understand the inner workings of the game because I knew that I could have more fun with it and I would be able to see the game better. Like my first three games of Arnak, I was like, this is really cool. We used the word, um, sort of like swashbuckling. Like <laughs> it, it was fun. Like we were along yeah. for the ride. Um, but I wanted to drive in the end right like so i wanted to understand how i could take it from that sort of like swashbuckling romp into something where i was like at the helm really understanding what game states looked like and what they were going to look like four turns from now and i felt like everything about that design said oh no we don't want you to see it we don't want you to see it like just play the game and and that was like a challenge in a way from the game what about for you what makes you want to be good at like 
X board game versus Y board game or X card game versus Y card game. You're not going to be competitive. Dedicate your hobby free time to Jake. Yeah, I think there are just certain games. The first, I mean, there are certain games that are more fun to execute mm. to like execute, you know? And I think we've yeah. talked about like, what does it mean? Um, like what does like, yeah, rather than just like the strategy and tactics of a game, like what does it mean to like proficiently execute a plan? And I think that to me, games that have that feeling where I'm like getting better and better at like executing what I want to do. Um, those are the ones that I feel keep getting more and more fun to me. And I think, you know, the best analogy, right, is, is something like disc golf, uh, which is a sport. It's also a dexterity game. Um, but in, in that, it just gives such a clear example of what I'm talking about, uh, which is, you know, when you first play the game, you know, and maybe, you know, if you're really good, and you have a lot of natural ability to it, maybe you're able to throw the disc a hundred feet in the general direction Mm. you want to go. Um, But as you, you know, but each subsequent round, you know, or hopefully, you know, you can throw it a little bit further. You're actually, you know, you're improving how you execute. You're able to aim a little bit better. Uh, And then one day you go out to that same tee box you start on. And instead of throwing a hundred feet, you throw it 300 feet and you're able to like make a birdie for the first time. And that's just like such a clean distillation of like, now I'm having more fun than I was when it took me six shots to get into the same basket. Um, it, it, there's just something fun about, you know, like watching the disc fly and like achieving that result. And I think um, that feeling of improving execution is not present in all games, but it is present in some games. And I have, I'm having a little bit of a hard time, just as I was thinking about this concept, uh, on kind of like pinpointing like what it is about games that enables that to be uh, the case. And I think that Arnak has it to some extent. I think chess is a great example of it, um, and and uh, in chess because like I've been playing a lot on the Chess.com app over the past uh, week, really. Um, and, and chess is fascinating because, you know, it's just an interesting game, but so many of my games come down to blunders, right? Mm. Oh crap. Like I didn't realize, like I left my queen out to dry like that, you know, uh, you know, I was in a totally winning position and now it's good game. Uh, or my opponent does that. Or one of us runs out of time because it's like a 10 minute, uh, time, real time game, real time game. Um, and you know, as I'm playing more and more, like making less of like, I'm still not good at all. I'm terrible, but like making less of those like obvious blunders, uh, being able to make my first several turns, right. That sequence a lot faster without thinking to like save myself some clock, uh, is making the game more fun to play. Uh, and I'm starting to feel like, okay, cool. Like now I'm actually playing chess. This is fun. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I feel like chess is one game where we've talked a lot on the show about how uh, in terms of Euro games, sometimes it's really hard to have a measure of of like technical performance in the game because usually you're just making 
the decision you think is the best and then you perform it and it works. But chess, there's so much information that mistakes factor in. But I find, Jake, just in terms of getting to know you and the games that we've played together, that you generally really like games where there's uh, where the better you get at the game, there's room within the outcome, however the rankings of the game work at the end, usually in terms of points, to increase your point outcome, like demonstrably, right? Like I, Castles of Burgundy, one of your favorite games of all time, or like Grand Austria Hotel. Both of these are games where the first time you play it, you might get like 30 or 40 or 50 points, but a, a player who is good at the game can get 150 points or maybe even... 200 points <laughs> um and i think you say our next 250 i don't know well, yeah like <laughs> exactly like you can see the feedback and watch it balloon and you have this measure of your success that you don't need to go play in a hyper competitive setting even in a more casual setting like just playing with your friends you can see yourself getting better um and that's fun to know that you're playing the game better um, whereas a game where you're playing and the, the rankings are done by like, you have to reduce, uh, the other player's life total to zero or in Keyforge, you have to forge three keys. It's harder to know if you're better at the game of Keyforge just by playing a game of Keyforge. You have to play a lot of games of Keyforge and sort of see how you do against a lot of different opponents. So like the potential to be good at that game or know you're good at that game outside of a competitive setting is way harder because the type of feedback that it gives is so much different. Um, so I feel like in terms of playing games casually, I it's also another thread that is I'm drawn to games that have complex systems that have outcomes that give you feedback in that yeah. way. Yeah, I was just thinking about that as you were talking and, and like the feedback in in a lot of these games is especially the ones that don't have like right the point total that tells you at the end how good you did um but the feedback is making mistakes right in keyforge yeah. it's you know we've talked about like the little mental errors of you know not doing something because of a lack of like awareness of the board state because you were trying to think through a very complex sequence of actions um and i think that is an instance where when you make one mistake and then you do it the next time, like that feels like, oh, I just threw that disc 20 feet further than I did last time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so so yeah, I think like so far the, to, the, what, to the extent that there is like execution of a plan uh, and you're able to see that, I think mistakes and making them or not is probably like the clearest way uh, in which that comes up in board games. I feel like the other factor that we'd be remiss not to mention too is just like potential for viable strategies that you couldn't perform without being good at the game. Um, I'm thinking of like, right now I'm playing Bruges, which is a game that you really enjoy a lot in Yukata. And I know that I don't fully understand the strategy of it yet. And I want to be better at the game because I want to see the potential combos that I can pull together. Uh, Bruges has a system where you, uh, basically a bunch of dice are rolled of different colors. And then you take actions based on cards in your hand of different colors tied to the dice, not always. Uh, and there's also a mechanic where you can sort of play these different cards as an effect, either immediate or ongoing. And I know that there's going to be really interesting combinations of ongoing effects that I could probably create in terms of combos, but I'm just not there yet because I don't know the card pool well enough. 
um, and I don't really understand the game quite well enough, and I want to be better so that I can do those more fun combos, right? That I'll just I know I'll have a more fun time at Bruges if I can make that happen rather than sort of like. Ooh, I guess I'm going to build a canal this turn or <laughs> I have two threat markers and I don't want to get three. I guess I'm going to do that. And like, I get, there's always the base level heuristics, but it's clearly a game where like the better I get at the game, the more I'm going to understand how exciting a specific game state is. And like, that's yeah. cool too. Yeah. And I think it with Bruges is another one where it's like the heights that you can get with in the game it just keeps growing for me which yeah. is cool um yeah can we talk really quickly about the why might you want to be good at a game competitively versus sure. good at a game casually because i feel like these are such diametrically opposing things and one huge aspect is like for me is obviously the community that a game has but one thing that i've been thinking about a lot is i want my time in the game i want to see uh reasonable i want to get better at a reasonably strong rate like i don't think i would have that much fun trying to be a competitive go player um at this point in my life i would be very interested in playing go casually with a group of friends who had never played before but i know that the the in terms of work going in to reward coming out of the game of go uh in a competitive setting it's not going to offer as much as something like keyforge or playing Pokemon Tournament, the video game that I really enjoy playing, or learning to play Magic the Gathering, or learning Star Realms. Um, and I feel like a really big factor in that is just like, I need the game that I want to get good at, like to have the right amount of uh, determinacy versus also randomness, right? Like a game that's too random, well, it's not that interesting to get really good at a game where the better player wins 51% of the time. Oh, like Magic um, the Gathering. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> but I do think that that's like a criticism of a lot of card games with right, high right, variants right. like that. Yeah. And maybe Magic more, more so than others. But like, I think that's really interesting in terms of thinking about yourself as a player. Uh, and the answer is going to be different just based on what stage in your life you're at, how much free time you have, what the prospects and horizon is for this game like what percentage of the time do you need to be able to win at a game and if it's if if jake feels magic the gathering is 51 percent, maybe that's why jake's not playing that much magic the gathering <laughs> these days um right but so what's your sweet spot for like how often should the better player win and i feel like in terms of for me it seems like I am more interested at getting better, investing the time to be really good at a game when it's like 60% to 80% or something. Like mm -hmm. to me, that seems to be the sweet spot. Um, and I have less fun playing games where like the better person wins 90 or 100% of the time. But that's not, maybe Maybe I I wouldn't say that because like fighting games generally, like the better person wins. Yeah, I was going to say that seems like an times. outlier a little bit Yeah, uh, when you said Pokemon. But yeah. No, maybe it's yeah. I think that I think that bringing up variance is is a is a great point. Um, and also, perhaps the variance um, not only does it have it has the benefit on both sides. It has the benefit to you as the competitive player who wants a hope uh, at being at beating the best player in the world in any given uh, match. Yeah, which I think there's definitely value to that, right? Um, you know, I could play, I could, 
I could spend a year studying at chess and I'm not going to have a Get chance close. of beating, you know, the Get anyone, Kimura. anyone yeah. from my local, much less the grand champions, like anyone at my local ch- chess club, even, yeah. you know, who's been playing for 10 years. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, something like magic, you know, I could pick it up and, and have it if assuming like, card pools are equal or whatever right i'd have a chance against anyone because Mm -hmm. they could draw poorly (laughs) and i could draw well um but there's also the benefit on the other side to your friends playing against you as the competitive player yeah right uh where they might still have fun playing something like an arnak or, or whatever or a star realms with you even knowing like, you know, you have all this experience, but they wouldn't with something like a transatlantic, which I have been playing right on, on Yukata, which is another one of just like very little variants. Um, and it's also why you, it's really tough to get your friends who play fighting games to play them with you. If you're way better than them. Well, and it's just not as much fun. It's just not going to be fun for anybody. Yeah, exactly. Right? And sucks. that's, and that's same with chess, right? If Carl, was it Magnus Carl? Carlson? Magnus Carlson. If he, if Magnus Carlson, you know, is like, <laughs> "Hey, pop on my Twitch stream. I'm I'm, I'm playing sub games." <laughs> you yeah. know? Like everyone would be like, "What the hell? How pointless is this?" Sure. Um. Yeah. So that's cool. I, okay. You, so sorry. Can I tell an anecdote really quickly. Yeah, please. Do you know that he Magnus Carlson has a Twitch alias that he would enter tournaments on on like chess.com for a long time or other websites called Dr. Drunkenstein? Yeah, I've heard about <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, good. It's a, it's an amazing story. Very fun. Okay, sorry, Jake. No, so, yeah, I mean if you're if you're interested, it's definitely worth the read. There, there's somebody put together like a pretty good piece on it, right? And he would like yeah. literally enter these tournaments drunk and just yeah. like, beat all the wipe the floor with everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Playing like real goofy chess, but like incredible because he's one of the best best chess players of all time. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is a cool thing. That actually brings up a cool thing about being good at games, which is some games like chess and like Go. Uh, that are these super high skill skill ceiling games. And I mean, to magic at some extent, like also allows room for like creative expression, right? Yeah. You can kind of express yourself on a chessboard. I don't know anything about Go, but um, there's actually a really interesting conversation on the most recent Shut Up and Sit Down podcast episode about Go and then how that's a game that really does allow like the, the best players in the world to express themselves. Like you would... Uh, like how we might watch, you might watch a Pokin tournament and without even knowing the players' names, you could be like, oh, that's like so-and-so's 100%. Machamp yep. or whatever. Uh, the same would be true of like a Go player watching a mm. Go tournament. Uh, you know, just looking at the board, they could probably pick out who the players were based on like how they chose to defend and attack, which is really cool. And I think often difficult to to get to, but, you know, I think that is a, a really cool value to being good, especially uh, if you're going to choose to dedicate a, a significant amount of time to just one game. I think having the ability to like express yourself within that game is something that, that would make that more personally worthwhile to me anyway. Definitely. I feel like uh, that's something that people who don't play games or don't play games competitively or don't 
uh, follow games a lot don't understand about games that once you that ability to express yourself that like that's so much of the joy that you're chasing like yes winning is important but that self-expression becomes so fun in the same and i feel like i can't prove this i don't have any study i can point to but i feel like if someone was willing to do a study like i feel like it's like activating a similar part of your brain as like someone who goes to learn to paint and when they're first painting like there's so much leveling up that happens so quickly and then you you quickly get better at painting and then your ability to express yourself becomes more and more and the longer you spend on it of course a lot of games that you can get good at you the skill difference between the best painters in the world and the worst is much larger than the best game players in the world in terms of what they can express at a game than the worst but i still feel like it activates a similar part of your brain and it's also why like i don't want to be the best coin flipping player in the world, right? Like, ostensibly, if this is like a toy game, a toy competitive oh, game. Brendan, I hate to break it to you, but you are the best coin flipping player in the world. Th- this is true. <laughs> With everyone else. But wait, okay, but but am I? But am I, right? Because what if, what if, in the, in terms of, there's a world where people, this, this society really cares about coin flipping, right? And the best coin flipping player in the world is actually the player who wins the most coin flipping tournaments. So, ah. so to be the best coin flipping player in the world really just means you dedicate as much of your free time as possible traveling to coin flipping events and getting to the <laughs> end of coin flipping tournaments, right? So, so it's not, and that's partially like, that sounds really silly, but there is a degree within like competitive games that have variants that that's also true. But usually we're not going to like, to figure out who the best coin flipping player in the world was in that game, obviously it's everyone. We're not dumb, but it's also interesting that like partially in terms of competitive games, they become interesting because of the stakes that opportunity costs create. And that's another reason why it can be fun to play games is because if you're good at games, the opportunity cost of playing games with other people who are good at games in a setting where a lot of people care makes those games and the games that you do play matter even more, which is just exciting. It's more fun to play games that you're good at with people who are good that you don't get to play with all the time to have those games really matter and have that shared experience. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I've got kind of one more thought. This is (laughs) this. And I just want to bounce off you. This is something I've been kind of thinking about turning over as we're talking about doing this episode, which is like, is getting is like being good at games at a meta level. Like Uh is how do I phrase this? Like, so if we talk about like being good at games, like not just one game, but somebody who plays a lot of games, somebody who's joining the board game hobby for the first time, does like being good mean that you are able to successfully like execute the teaching and the playing of more and more complicated games? Like maybe for, you know, like the equivalent to like disc golf, right? Like improving the execution of like how far you can throw like in the board game hobby, where we were talking about people playing lots of different games is actually more akin to like, I first I played Ticket to Ride and then Mm. I played Castles of Burgundy and then I taught my friends brass and we all had fun. Like, Mm. I think that there is, I'm not explaining this well, but like, I think there's like something to that that like triggers like the same part of your brain of like improvement. Like Mm. I'm improving at this because like I used to think like the first time I played Castles of Burgundy, 
and it's true for me like i it was like the most complicated game i had played you know and getting through it teaching people was like holy cow that was really tough and now i can crank out a game of castles of burgundy you know with another you know experienced player you know in like an hour like if i'm playing with my wife that's like an hour tops and like i think to me like Hmm. that that in itself like just like being able to like execute the actual play of a game better like is that what it means to be good at games in the board game hobby okay so i'm really intrigued by this idea (laughs) and i feel like there's two things so one is i feel like what you're saying jake is that there's an intrinsic reward to being good at games or it which is that you are maybe it's extrinsic that you're getting to play more games and that for someone who plays games being able to play more games is like a benefit of being good that's fun because especially for board games where there's this constraint of time and understanding the better you get at playing games generally the more games you'll get to play which is then rewarding is that what you're saying yeah yeah like the more games yeah like you will feel comfortable playing and i think this is not true for the people necessarily that we rope into our game nights. Mm. I'm not saying like you should be like getting all of them to like level up in each play. But like, I think if you're saying to yourself, like if you identify as like a board gamer, you're like one of my hobbies is playing board games. I mean, I think you, you see people like I certainly followed that trend of like playing heavier and heavier games when I first started. And I think I was doing that because I was like, it was like me, I'm like improving at this hobby. Mm, Even, that's really you know, interesting. And we could like, deb- obviously like we could debate about whether or not like there's like any inherent value to like playing a heavier game over a light one. And right, there's like a lot of debate about the fact that like heavier games tend to get higher ratings mm. on Board Game Geek than light ones. And I wonder like if, if that kind of like dynamic is, is partly at play here. I think that that has to be at play in some ways too, because of like the um, the bias that people who have invested the time in to like learn to play more complex games is going to probably make them enjoy them more because of the perceived investment that they have, whether that's conscious or not. Though I will say, I don't think it's a goal for everyone to always play heavier and heavier, heavier games. Like for some people, right? They're like, I really like playing light games and I just want to play light games. And those are the games that I want to design and engage with. And that's awesome. And that's like a super valid way to participate in the hobby. And I know you, you're saying that too, Jake, and you feel that way too. So I don't, I think sometimes on the show, we like lean more towards zero games because they work really well within our framework, but we both like light games too. Um, but I think it's interesting in terms of what you're charting, in terms of like being good at games and the potential like reward that you can feel as a player of games when you learn increasingly complex games. A flip side too is I feel like even with simple games, um, there's like a payoff of like the like cool factor or like how swag you can feel of like being good at a really simple game. Like my wife, I would say, is like um, objectively amazing at spades. Um, and that's just like badass, right? Like if you're good at spades, it's like a game that like people all across the world might know how to play. And you're like reasonably confident that you can beat someone at it. Like that's really rewarding and fun too in an interesting way. And it also makes her better at playing other card games and understanding how to pick up like simple card games more quickly. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, maybe that's kind of like food for thought or something that we can kind of refine and flesh out later. But I'd be really interested to hear uh, what any of our listeners have to say about that, Um, whether being good at games is just being able to execute and play more complex games. I get that pang of satisfaction where I'm like, well, I now I did it, you know. Woo, that was crazy. I'm not sure I mm. had a good strategy, but I definitely did play Twilight Imperium, right? Um, something, you know what I mean? I, I do. It's what it's so interesting hearing you say this because I feel like what I'm hearing is like the language of someone who is a runner and says, "I ran six miles today." Right. And like the exactly. validation of that is just fun. Like, is running yeah. is running six miles inherently more fun than running five miles i would say objectively it is not yeah objectively no yeah but accomplishing running six miles is way more fun than accomplishing Uh, running five exactly telling people that you ran a marathon way cooler than telling people that you ran a one twenty, yeah or 20 miles or you know what i mean Sure. If you run 20 miles, gosh, you, you might as well just try to drag yourself over <laughs> yeah. the 26 mile finish line there. But <laughs> right. at that point. Yeah, I, th- I do. I think that is a great analogy for kind of what I'm talking about here. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, not everybody, of course, like subscribes that. And I think a lot of people start out on that path when they first join the hobby. Or maybe I'm just talking about myself here. And then realize, like, where is my niche? Okay, it's, like, more into, like, light, medium, and, you know, kind of just middleweight games or what I typically typically enjoy playing most with my group of friends. You know, my friend Paul, board game designer, he likes playing filler games. Like, that's how he likes to fill his game nights. Um, you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Paul certainly is, like, capable of playing these, like, heavy games. Um and, but I'm, I'd be interested, I wonder what, what Paul thinks if he started out doing that kind of ramping up before settling back down to that niche. One thing that's interesting is I feel like my tasting games probably, in terms of like weight, in terms of like enjoying lighter games, probably aligns more with Paul than with you in that way. But I, so I started, the first like modern board game I bought was Pandemic. The second modern board game I bought was The Resistance. The third modern board game I bought was Keyflower, which is a really interesting trend because when I put these games in front of my friends in succession, like first first game out of the gate, Pandemic. Wow, this is so fascinating. These systems are so interesting. Like we're going to digest this puzzle together. Then we play The Resistance and we're like, wow, we're just playing Mafia, but it's like a modern board game giving us the excuse. And we feel like we're in middle school and also stabbing each other in the back. Oh, now we can't talk to each other for three months. Well, that's not great. And then I sat down with Keyflower and they were like all really in. They were super excited. And then like 20 minutes into the rules explanation where I wasn't equipped to teach the rules as well as I should have been because I was pretty new to playing sort of modern Euro style games. They were like, oh God, what have you done? And I think that's given me like a lasting affection for that game. Um, But maybe left also this lasting like, Oh, for my friends who don't play board games as much, I'm just going to tend towards lighter games because I know we'll all have more fun. And then with Jake, I'll play these heavier games or these like more medium weight games. Well, maybe my reaction to Keyflower will help you to cut your friends a little bit of slack moving Should forward. Should we cover it next week? <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, sure. Why not? Next okay. week, Keyflower. Uh, so for all you pre-planners out there, uh, boot it up. 
You can play it on Board Game Arena. Um, talk with us on the Discord. Well, let me give a quick pitch for Keyflower for those who don't know because I did a bad job. So Keyflower, if you want to pre-plan and play it, it is a worker placement auction tiling city arranging game with a uh, light economic logistics system that uh, has variable end game scoring that you have agency over, but not a ton of agency. Uh, uh, And also... um, Perfect information, kind of. This is just me giving you like a shovel as you're like digging your own <laughs> grave. It's a really cool game. You should check it out. It's by Sebastian Breeze. It's on Board Game Arena. Uh, be ready for it next week. Jake, we've done a really bad job historically in the last five to 10 episodes pitching uh, all of our social media. So I'm yeah, going to do you're it. right. Is do that it. okay? Please. Okay. If you've made it this far, you are a fan of Decision Space. Thank you. Really excited that you're in on this trip where Jake and I are learning to play and think about games with this new lens. If you'd like to continue this conversation more with us, we'd certainly love to hear from you, whether it's about Jake's sort of the idea that he's sort of put into the ether at the end of the episode or anything about being good at games and what that means to you. I'd love to continue that conversation with you. We share our Discord in the show notes. Uh, You should join. Talk to us. We're friendly. Talk to the other people there. They're friendly too. Uh, You could also, if you don't use Discord, talk to us on BoardGameGeek. We have a blog that we post every week on. Sometimes people leave comments. That's awesome. We also have a Twitter that we have some followers. We would like more people to follow us. And if you would like updates, you can get follows there. And we would also love to talk to you on Twitter. And you... Going to Twitter is kind of like rolling the dice. You don't know if you're going to get Jake or I. So if you find yourself having a desire for some variance, feel free to reach out on Twitter and you'll see who who you get a response from. Uh, But I think that's another week of decision space. Oh, follow Jake on Twitter at Jake Freed on Twitter. Is that right? Okay, good. Or follow me. Yeah, J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D. And you can probably find me just sharing the decision space stuff which is decision spa that's decision spa oh no i didn't tell them what the twitter link was <laughs> thank you jake and you can follow me uh i'm brendan again brendan hansen at burnside b-u-r-n-s-i-d-e b-h at twitter.com uh and if you like the podcast tell a friend we'd love to get more people in the inner decisional space shift cruising towards better understanding games alongside us and i think I'll let Jake close us out, but I think that's been an awesome week of decision space. Yeah. Thanks for the conversation, Brendan. It's been a pleasure. Exiting the decision space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game. Mm